Some of my friends, they were living in an area just outside of Philadelphia where they found that houses were built with a cement that contained active radium and radon gas was something that had been proliferating in these houses for many decades. And the EPA had just discovered it as a, a major public health threat and many of my friends were affected by this situation and knowing that I was working in a field related to health, they reached out to me and I ended up going to some community meetings, asking questions of the EPA and the politicians. I really knew nothing about how this process worked, but I was beginning to understand that there was a much bigger world and need around public health and science outside of the occupational setting. And one thing I really appreciated was that there was a need to do work at the community level. And that got me much more interested in public health and epidemiology, this field out there that really did bring together multiple disciplines, including things like medicine and engineering and biology, physics, and there was a chance to sort of meld it all together to apply it to real world problems with the potential to protect and promote health. That was Dr. Dennis Nash. Hello and welcome everyone to Making Public Health Personal. This podcast is brought to you by the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy in New York City. I'm your host, Laura Mioli Farragon, Academic Technology Specialist at CUNY SPH. You don't have to work in healthcare or have a PhD to understand these topics. We're going to break them down for you and give you practical tips to make a difference. Each episode of Making Public Health Personal focuses on an aspect of health and social justice that affects our daily lives. We'll learn from expert faculty, researchers, alumni, and students on how public health policy, advocacy, and practices can benefit our ever-evolving community and our world. Today's episode is about the burden of HIV how far medical interventions and public programs have come to improve the quality of life for people living with HIV, and how we can use those lessons to inform our response to COVID-19. My guest today is Dr. Dennis Nash, Distinguished Professor of Epidemiology here at CUNY SPH and Executive Director of CUNY's Institute for Implementation Science in Population Health. He has over 20 years of experience in infectious disease epidemiology on a national and global scale. The National Institutes of Health primarily funds his research, and he's published over 200 scientific articles. We'll be discussing some of his research on HIV and COVID in today's episode. Thanks for joining me today, Dennis. Thanks for having me. So the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, as most people know it, have funded quite a bit of your research so that we can start with a good foundation of understanding for our audience. Once someone like you gets grant funding for research, what happens next? Well, once we get the notice of award, as it's called from NIH, that they're going to fund the grant proposal that we submitted to them, then we can begin the process of creating a budget and working with the Research Foundation of CUNY to be able to spend those monies on the research activities that we plan to execute. And often that first involves bringing some people who may already be on board and shifting some of their time and effort to the project and, and also hiring new people that we might be needing in order to execute the project. NIH projects are often multi-year projects, sometimes 
up to five years. And so um, there's a lot of planning and they're also can be very large. Usually whenever we get a grant, there, we, we need to hire more people in order to get the, the research done. The nice thing about getting a grant is that there's so much work involved in putting together the proposal for one of these NIH research projects that we've really laid out um, the plans for the project in pretty great detail as part of that process, including a timeline for all of the different activities. And so mm-hmm. we are ready to hit the ground running. But as many of us say in, in the field, um, it's, a, of course, a ton of work to get a grant proposal funded. But once the grant proposal is funded, that's when the real work begins. Understood. So you're going into it pretty prepared. So most recently, your study on HIV injectables and the effectiveness of the Ryan White program is what you've been working on. Can you tell us about the program and your research around HIV? Sure. Um, The Ryan White program in the United States is a program that is essentially the payer of last resort for people living with HIV to get care for their HIV and treatment for their HIV, as well as other um, supportive services. It's estimated that about half of people living with HIV around the U.S. get some kind of support from the Ryan White program. So it's essential for making sure that in a country where our healthcare system is not universal, mm-hmm. that the most vulnerable people who are at very high risk of bad outcomes with the HIV are protected and that they can get the services and the treatment they need in order to survive. The Ryan White program has been in existence for quite a long time. It's named after a child with HIV who died named Ryan White, and Congress authorizes the Ryan White program, reauthorizes it on a regular basis. And so so jurisdictions all around the U.S. have federal funding from the Ryan White Care Act, Mm -hmm. and um, in New York City, it funds services in all five boroughs at many different service locations. And um, our research has been in collaboration with the New York City Health Department. The the health department actually runs the Ryan White services in New York City. We partnered with them quite a long time ago when they noticed that while some people do quite well on HIV treatment and as part of their care program, others struggle. And they, they struggle because intersecting with the HIV epidemic in the U.S. are other epidemics, including you know those related to mental health disorders and substance use disorders, and also unstable housing and um, incarceration. And so there is a not small subset of people living with HIV who have not only just you know, one of these issues, often multiple issues like this sort of happening at once mm-hmm. that serve as, um, you know, barriers to many things, but they serve as a barrier to achieving good HIV care outcomes. And the way we sort of look at this as being retained in continuous care and engaging in, in those services and being able to take medications regularly enough so that their HIV viral load becomes undetectable. So when when you look in the plasma of people living with HIV, if they're taking their medications regularly, you shouldn't be able to see evidence of the virus. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're cured, but it is the desirable treatment outcome. It shows that treatment is going to work for them and they're going to be able to not only have a normal life expectancy um, if they can maintain their treatment, but they're also not going to transmit HIV to anyone else when they can get there. But there's a non-small subset of people in the Ryan White program who really struggle getting there uh, because of all these issues I mentioned. And so our project with the health department, our research project was focused on that subset of people in the Ryan White program and the health department 
had designed an intervention called the HIV Care Coordination Program. It's a comprehensive intervention that includes a bunch of different evidence-based strategies, evidence-based interventions sort of in a package that includes things like medical case management, peer navigation, directly observed therapy, and other kinds of ancillary and supportive services, such as assessment of mental health disorders and substance use disorders and linkage, not, not only like diagnosing and recognizing those situations, but actually facilitating linkage to care mm-hmm. and treatment for those things, should they be found. So the intervention is something that you know many recognized was very needed for this subset of people that really struggle with managing their HIV infection. We collaborated with the health department to design a research plan to evaluate the effectiveness of this program. They sort of rolled it out without a plan to assess its impact. Mm-hmm. And that's how we were brought in and we collaborated on an NIH proposal. Um, It took several iterations, um, several resubmissions to NIH. It took a few years, actually, to get funded. And by the time we got the funding, the care coordination program had been in existence for a few years. But we ultimately did get the funding, and we were able to do a very rigorous study to show um, the effectiveness of this intervention compared to what we would call usual care, people that didn't get the intervention living with HIV that were also, you know, struggling with their HIV outcomes. And what we showed was that the care coordination intervention did help some people, but did not help everyone who was enrolled as much as, um, you know, we would have liked. So there were certain groups of people who benefited, others not so much. In the process, the health department really reviewed their whole experience with implementing the care coordination program Mm-hmm. as well as the findings from our research project and said, you know, we, we're going to try to redesign the care coordination intervention and repackage it in the hopes of having, you know, even more impact than we've had to date going forward. Yeah. And so that was another opportunity for us to, to collaborate with them to see if we can evolve the care coordination program and the intervention for even greater impact. And That was the next study that we did Mm -hmm. with them. Um, They made some modifications to the interventions and they targeted more directly at the people who were expected to benefit the most. And we got a grant in this case, it was really to do more of a, a randomized study where some sites were randomized to implement the new intervention and other sites were randomized to continue the existing care coordination intervention. And and we're now in the process of comparing the outcomes between those two groups. As with the original version, we expect there to be some impact, but you know, what we're seeing is that there are so many complicated issues, so many really challenging barriers that this group of clients with HIV are experiencing that it's very, very hard to imagine, you know, one intervention that is going to work for everyone. So we're beginning to think about other strategies that can potentially be layered on top of the revised care coordination intervention and beginning to look forward even further about how we'll be able to have more impact. Because at the end of the day, we were fortunate in the US and in New York to be not just working on controlling the HIV epidemic, but we have visions, initiatives that really are aiming to end HIV as a public health threat, which to me means people are no longer being hospitalized or dying 
from HIV. And maybe we've reduced the number of infections, new infections to such a low level that we can consider it not to be a public health threat anymore. And Mm -hmm. which is great. But what we feel in our research with the health department is that it's not going to be possible to achieve these goals of ending HIV as a public health threat until we can help that group of people living with HIV who are struggling the most, which is a pretty significant proportion of all people living with HIV. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some of these overlapping problems. You said mental health affects patients with HIV. Are there any other overlapping quality of life issues and what's being done to address that overlap? Yeah, well, some of the issues are extremely fundamental. You know, for example, housing. There's a lot of unstable housing in um, the Ryan White care coordination population. A lot of effects of incarceration and going in and out of jail and prison system is it's very disruptive to everything and HIV as well. Um, at least um, managing HIV sort of in a, in a continuous way. Another sort of big cross-cutting issue is stigma. There's, I think New York City is, you know, very progressive in many ways when it comes to accepting people with HIV, accepting people with in different circumstances and different lifestyles. However, there is a sort of cross-cutting several layers of stigma that are getting in the way of people having the most optimal treatment outcomes as well. Um, And this, this is something that can be pervasive. It can be something that is coming from family, from communities, and even from within the healthcare system where people are um, needing to go for services. And so I I think it's actually a big part of the agenda to end the HIV epidemic as a public health threat, as well as stigma reduction. Mm -hmm. It's not something we've been working on as part of our research with the health department, but it is a very big part of the agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the stigma of it, obviously, people who live with HIV are more knowledgeable about the disease, you would think, but stigma is really a problem for everyone else. So how do you get the information out there to inform people who don't live with HIV? Yeah, this is a, a real challenge. And I would say that some of it is the fact that it's HIV. Some of it is the fact that for many people, they, they view it as a, um, like anything that has to do with sex or drugs, um, which does intersect with the um, HIV epidemic, people can be very judgmental about. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, lifestyle decisions or choices around sexual orientation and gender identity also seems to carry a lot of stigma, you know, unrelated to HIV. And so it really is about there's a big agenda about the need to destigmatize a lot of these issues. A lot of it has to do with education. A lot of it has to do with initiating conversations and bringing people together. The healthcare system totally needs to be sensitized to all these issues on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of thing that unfortunately takes a long time. And I'm encouraged to see that a lot of schools and young children being oriented to these issues. And a lot of what many people in our society consider they may have, you know, judgments about that just is much, much less likely to happen in the young generation. So, you know, there will hopefully be a generational effect and we need to do whatever we can to influence positive change for the people that are currently having negative impacts on vulnerable people at risk for HIV and living with HIV through their actions and roles in society. 
So you're studying these patients here and this program here in New York City, but how do you hope that your research will have an impact nationally and even globally? Well, many of the issues that people in the Ryan White program are facing are common across the entire U.S. And so some of the things that we find to be effective in New York will be very relevant for other Ryan White service providers in other urban settings all around the U.S. And I do think many of the issues that we are trying to work against, um, the barriers and the the challenges, some of them are very specific to the U.S. epidemic. Like if you go globally, for example, where most people with HIV live in sub-Saharan Africa, it's not as heavily driven by substance use and mental illness and homelessness. It's Mm -hmm. not the same um, because it's a much more generalized epidemic. And in our setting, the epidemic has ended up being concentrated among very vulnerable people. So there will be some relevant lessons on the global scale, but certainly on a national scale. Like I said, almost half of people with HIV, if not more, get services through the Ryan White program in the U.S., which is about half a million people, if not more, living with HIV in the U.S. So anything Mm -hmm. we learn in New York City will have direct relevance to the whole Ryan White program across the U.S. And so you're doing also research on HIV injectables. How is that a game changer? Right. Yeah. So as I was saying, we're we're sort of incrementally improving, trying to improve and assess the impact of these course corrections or changes to the care coordination intervention. But meanwhile, there are new interventions being developed that I think also hold promise for this population of people with HIV who really struggle with management of their infection. And one of them is a new technology of long-acting injectable treatment for HIV, which means instead of taking a daily pill or a twice-daily pill, they can have medications injected that will last for a month or sometimes more. And so the promise, the potential promise there is that it kind of removes the barrier to daily medication adherence that many, not all, but many people with HIV and in the uh, care coordination program especially struggle with. So we know that it's highly effective, highly efficacious in clinical trials, Mm -hmm. but the clinical trials have been done in populations that are very different from the populations that we're working with in the Ryan White program. And so what we need to understand first, while we, we may think these things hold great promise, we need to understand first the extent to which such interventions like long acting injectables are acceptable and feasible in the group of people that that we hope might be able to benefit from it. Not only acceptable to the clients themselves, but also to providers who would need to be on board in order to get it delivered. And so another NIH project that recently got funded in collaboration with the health department and our team at CUNY is to look at the feasibility and acceptability of long-acting injectables in the Ryan White program. And the idea is that, you know, there are many different things that the Ryan White program and the care coordination program does to support medication adherence, like Mm -hmm. peer navigation and peer support or directly observed therapy. And so there's really like a menu of services that can support medication adherence. And one of the things we're very interested in is understanding whether or not it makes sense to add long-acting injectables to that menu of options that clients and providers have 
And if it's added to that menu, does it have an impact on some of these long-term outcomes that we're really, we've really been working to improve, like um, durable viral suppression? If you dream of making a difference in the world, a public health degree or certificate can give you the tools to do just that. The City University of New York's Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy equips public health professionals to advance not only a healthier New York City, but a healthier world for us all. We want you to join us in our mission. Visit sph.cuny.edu to learn more about our programs. No matter where you are in your career, CUNY SPH offers a broad range of degree and certificate programs to not only help you advance in your career, but to have a real impact on the world. Public health professionals are needed now more than ever. Join us. Visit sph.cuny.edu to learn more. Of all this research you've been doing with the Ryan White program and on HIV, what was the most important thing that you've learned and what can be taken from your research to improve the lives of people living with HIV? I think what we've learned is that even when there are very thoughtful, evidence-based approaches that are designed to address what are very significant barriers and challenges of some of the most vulnerable people living with HIV, it's very hard to move the needle a lot. We can, we can move it a little and we can, and then we can learn from that and then we can move it a little more. We have not yet seen what many in public health hope to see when they're trying to improve outcomes through intervention research is, you know, a big improvement in outcomes. And so I guess the lesson that we've learned is that it's important to, um, you know, do your best to design an intervention that you hope will have a large impact, but it's wise to expect that it may not happen and that the road to longer-term impact is longer than you might plan for. And that it's important to, um, especially when you're dealing with complicated factors that are working against the efforts to get the desired outcomes, it's important to plan for a multitude of different approaches. Some of it is about tweaking and improving the, the approaches that, that seem to work a little bit or work well for some, but um, you also need to plan to look for totally new angles and approaches that may work for a bunch of other people. And you know, as I say that, I'm thinking about the long-acting injectables. That, that is something mm -hmm. very new that we have not looked at anything like that in our research yet, but I'm excited and hopeful that it may help to bring some larger gains in outcomes. So it's a long-term game, lots of trial and error, and it's you absolutely have been working on this research for a pretty long time. And what's really interesting about you and why I'm so interested in talking to you is because your research seems like it has a lot of social impact and you're studying people and people's way of life and how to improve their way of life. And I think when people think public health research, they think, a drug trial or give somebody a pill and see if it works. And, and you're kind of doing this type of research, which is more going to the people and seeing how their life is affected by policy, by programs and things like that. So I, I think that's really to be commended and very interesting. Well, thank you. I, I think this is one of the things that attracts me to this kind of work is that it is very real world. It is very messy, mm -hmm. but it is clear that for the public health impact to happen, you need to be able to transport the 
evidence and effects that you see in you know very controlled research settings into the real world at scale mm -hmm. and that is really what our institute of implementation science and population health is about it's, it's about trying to take the best scientific evidence from all places and then trying to implement it at scale in ways that actually influence population health outcomes the other thing that attracts me to the challenges and working in the Ryan White program, and in particular, the group of people living with HIV who um, have struggled so much over the years to manage their HIV, is if you look at where the deaths are occurring due to HIV in New York City, for example, it's largely in two groups. Um, one group is this group of people that we're working with who are uh, have struggled with their HIV for years and years, and they are the group of people who are most at risk for dying from HIV, dropping out of care, having long periods of time without medications for a variety of reasons that we, we talked about. The other group is people who have HIV and don't necessarily know they have HIV until it's become very advanced. Mm. Um, and sometimes that group gets diagnosed too late to really fully benefit from all of the great treatments that we have to offer to people with HIV. So I think that it's really important for public health researchers to focus on those groups that are at highest risk for these really bad outcomes. That means working in very real world settings in the lower tiers of the healthcare system, because mm -hmm. we do have a very inequitable and, and tiered healthcare system, but that, that's what's necessary. Research has to happen there and it has to be very relevant. It has to be ideally fast so we can learn quickly mm -hmm. and efficiently and then disseminate it very rapidly so that people are are aware of it and can make changes to programs and practices and policies in other places around the country. It sounds a little bit similar to COVID. I know that you also were recently funded by NIH for the Chasing COVID cohort study. Can you tell me a bit about that and how that overlaps with HIV or is similar? Sure. Yes. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Many of us working in the field of HIV also pivoted to work on the COVID-19 pandemic. And we, our institute was one of the first to launch a, a national cohort study of people at risk for COVID or maybe people who have had COVID because we saw the potential for what was happening in New York City um, at the time to be a much bigger issue for New York City and also a much bigger issue around the nation. And so in March and April of 2020, we decided to launch a national cohort study where we would enroll people, we would interview them about a bunch of different things, and we would also routinely get blood specimens from them that they would collect at home and send back to us to our lab through the mail, and we would be able to measure the infection rates and also the risk factors for infection our mission is with this cohort really much broader than only looking at COVID-related outcomes. We saw the potential for some of the public health measures that we were undergoing in New York City, such as you know, lockdown, to have very significant mental health and economic impacts on the population. And so we were interested in understanding really sort of the full impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, including the virus, as well as you know, the impact of all of these restrictions on the health and well-being of communities, households, and individuals. That's part of the name of, of where the Chasing COVID cohort comes from. It's about understanding 
the impact of the pandemic on communities, households, and individuals. When we launched this cohort, we really kind of did it from scratch and on a shoestring with very little funds. Mm -hmm. But as we were uh, launching the study, we were also writing rapidly a research proposal that we would submit to NIH. And NIH had put out a call for proposals and they had allocated funds for emergency funding to support this kind of research. And we, we applied, we submitted our proposal and NIH funded us um, with their emergency funds for this cohort study beginning in June of 2020. And so, so that's really what helped us accelerate the work that we've been doing in this project um, and to continue to do more specimen collection. And we're continuing to follow over 6,000 patients today in, in the Chasing COVID cohort study, almost two years later. And so what is similar about HIV and COVID? Are you seeing any similarities in terms of barriers to care or certain types of mental health issues or anything like that? Yes, there are so many similarities. And I mean, the first one I'll point out is how um, inept politicians can be at managing pandemics. This was really a tragic part of what happened with HIV and AIDS in the 1980s and really ended up with not only unmitigated spread of the virus without care, but also an indifference um, on the part of government and on the part of the healthcare system. Well, less to less extent, the healthcare system, but that ended up, I think, putting us in a much worse place today than we, we really needed to be. And it has to do with how important a role politics plays in pandemics. Mm -hmm. And I think we have seen on almost every level the same thing happen in this country with the COVID-19 pandemic. It was mismanaged at all levels of the government, especially at the federal level and deliberately mismanaged. And you can say some similar things about the state and local government response all across the U.S., even in areas where there are progressive political leaders in place. So that's a big parallel and an unfortunate one. Another one, I think, is stigma. Uh, stigma has played a role in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It has discouraged people from, you know, getting tested and engaging in different strategies that they may need to be uh, engaging in in order to reduce their risk or reduce the risk of others. Mm -hmm. And I think another important parallel maybe relates to what we saw as the potential solution for the HIV pandemic, which is treatment, testing and treatment. And what we saw as the potential solution for the COVID-19 pandemic, which is the vaccine, it's one thing to have a treatment or a vaccine that works very well in controlled research settings. It's another thing to get those same treatments or preventatives to the entire population that needs them at scale, right? Mm -hmm. And so in both cases, we have a lot of people on treatment for HIV and vaccinated for COVID quickly, but there's another large group of people who, for a variety of reasons, complicated reasons, many different reasons, do not access or engage with or otherwise benefit from these really important approaches to managing each pandemic. Um, so I think there are a lot of parallels. And I also see that there are lessons learned that we should have learned, that we did learn with the HIV pandemic 
that have not been sort of taken to heart and, and practiced as, as part of the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. So do you think that COVID will be around for as long as HIV is around for something that we're going to have to deal with long-term? Yeah, I do. But I also believe that with high enough vaccine coverage, um, which you know may not come in the next few months, but may come over a longer period of months or years around the world, we can get to a place where there can be spread, there can even be surges in infection, but because people will have a level of protection against severe disease and deaths, we won't see surges in in severe disease and death like we're seeing now all across the country and across the world. So we can get to a place with the current vaccines and with some new treatments that are coming online where we can live with the spread of the virus, but not have to experience the deaths and devastation that we've experienced to date. But we're, we're quite a while from getting to that point. If you could make any public health related policy changes today, based on what you learned from all your research, what is it that you would do? Are we talking about COVID? I'm talking about all of it. Um, okay. So if, if we could make any change, I think it would be to make structural changes that prevent the ability to, or at least reduce the likelihood that public health can be politicized. It will always be politicized, but mm. we have some structural conditions in place in the U.S. and probably in almost every other country or many other countries that really lay the groundwork for politicization to, uh, to take hold. So for example, I would say that some public health positions and positions in many other sectors should, should not be political appointees. I think it's crazy that the director of the CDC is a political appointee mm-hmm. and same for the FDA and HHS. They're all part of the um, political system, but I think one big step is to shelter these bodies and these decision makers from that process and agenting them with the authority to make decisions that are needed for public health, independent of what any politician says or wants. Mm -hmm. Another thing is that social media is um, completely out of control. It is absolutely maybe a bigger pandemic spreading faster than the virus Mm -hmm. itself. That's what the WHO director general said early on. And I I believe it. And public health is not equipped to really combat it. And so we've had a losing battle and we're still losing the battle because of social media and because it's completely unchecked in terms of what what it can do. And the other thing that I would change, I know you asked for one thing, but I'm giving you- (laughs) No worries. All very good things. The other thing is that we have- also structurally built into our society in the U.S. is structural racism. And we have seen from the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, something we see with many, many other public health challenges is that they play out along racial and ethnic lines such that there are inequities and the greatest burden of the pandemic is being felt in communities of color. and this was very clear to everyone at the beginning. But if you look at how our governments responded, they may have addressed, and this is arguable, they may have addressed the, the pandemic more broadly in that it reduced infections and deaths, but it did not do so equitably. In fact, in many instances, 
these approaches to managing public health problems, um, while they may improve outcomes for the whole population, they tend to exacerbate existing inequities. Mm -hmm. and, and we've seen that with HIV and we've seen it with, with COVID. And so the thing I would change is that public health implementers and decision makers need to anticipate this and it needs to be baked into any large public health initiative, for example, vaccination programs, mass vaccination programs. There are lots of ways that they could do this, but if you look at, if you go back and you look at what the U.S. has done and what the state and the city have done, there's nothing in their approaches that have anticipated and inherently planned to address the inequities. Their targets are all nationwide and citywide, but we know that we need to have different targets for different communities because different communities are more affected than others and different communities need different strategies than mm -hmm. others. So if we have a goal that says we want to get to 70% vaccination citywide, that's great, but we also need goals that talk about how we're going to get to certain levels of coverage in different groups that may need different levels of attention, different levels of priority, and different approaches. And those targets are equally important because it's the only way we can assure that we don't worsen inequities or perpetuate them. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see um, greater attention in advance baked into public health initiatives that work to deal with and anticipate the inequities that inevitably come with our traditional approaches to handling public health problems. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of that in New York City in the beginning of when the vaccine became available, because I remember they were opening up vaccine sites in Yankee Stadium and in the boroughs in certain areas close to these high transmission rate neighborhoods. So they were making it available, making it walk in 24 seven, get your vaccine. That was kind of an afterthought. It was, oh, we're seeing who's getting the vaccine and we're seeing that these neighborhoods are not getting it as quickly. And so now we want to make a fix for that. So they were kind of doing trial and error too, I think. Yeah. What we've seen in the Chasing COVID cohort study is not only did we see the racial and ethnic disparities in infection rates early on mm -hmm. and the higher level of infection rates among essential workers early on, but when you look further on into the pandemic, for example, almost a year later, the new infections were also disproportionately high among Black and brown people in our cohort and among essential workers. So, so basically, all of the efforts going in to control the pandemic between March of 2020 and January 2020 really did nothing to help address the, the racial and ethnic disparities and in incidents and also the higher risk among essential workers. So mm -hmm. that's such a, an oversight and missed opportunity and it points to the structural racism in our governments and in our society. Absolutely. Well, all very good suggestions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Making Public Health Personal, presented by the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy in New York City. I want to give a special thanks to our guest, Dr. Dennis Nash, and let you know that all the links and resources we discussed in today's episode are available in the description below. To find out more about us, you can visit sph.cuny.edu or connect with us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. This is your host, Laura Mioli Farragon, signing off. And while public health has a global impact, that doesn't mean we can't make it personal. Thanks for listening.